I'm Andrea Combs from The Frontline, and tonight we are discussing Christmas in The Frontline. With me in the studio today is my dad, Dr. Peter Hammond. Welcome. It's wonderful having you in the studio, Andrea. Thanks, Dad. Always a pleasure for me, too. Now, would you mind giving us a bit of background on what we are discussing tonight? Christmas in The Frontline. What frontline are we discussing exactly? Well, a hundred and Six years ago, 107 years ago, on Christmas Eve 1914, the singing of Silent Night led to a spontaneous ceasefire that was observed throughout the entire Western Front and reports of the Christmas truce, which brought hostilities on both the Western and Eastern Fronts to an extraordinary halt, were suppressed and denied for many years. It, it was a thought crime to even mention it. Uh, you would get a deep platform. They didn't use that term then. Uh, they called it uh, the equivalent of fake news, uh, lies and so on. Uh, interestingly, uh, just in 2014, on the 100th anniversary of the First World War, I was invited to speak on the First World War and give a series of lectures in England. And I managed to get a day off to go to the Imperial War Museum, which is one of the greatest war museums in the world in London. And there they had an entire exhibit on the First World War, the whole of the of the uh, ground floor. And it was a whole section just devoted to the Christmas truce, which the British textbooks and government had denied even happened for generations. Wow. But now on the 100th anniversary, uh, there they had the pictures that had been suppressed. They had the uh, details, the initial news reports, which, of course, had been pulled and, and spiked. Uh, it was an extraordinary thing. And... Uh, there's been a whole lot more evidence since then, but uh, this is just where, where else and what else could possibly bring one of the worst wars in human history, one of the most devastating wars in history, to a skiddy halt than the birth of Christ? It's pretty mind-boggling when you think about it. I mean, you're trained to strike uh, across the... Um, the lines, yeah. Yeah, across the, the lines. Trenches. You're fighting your enemies and so, or your enemy. So how did that start? Well, it was actually the, the way the stories go from all that we can see, it would appear that the very first observance of the Christmas truce uh, started at Ypres. And I've been all around Ypres. In fact, there's a huge amount of war cemeteries around Ypres. Just in a 10-mile radius of Ypres, there are 156 different cemeteries for the British and Empire Commonwealth forces alone. And I've personally seen over 64 Hammonds on the walls. And when I went and investigated with the uh, War Graves Commission, they informed me that from their computer records, there were 480 Hammonds died in the First World War. Wow. Uh, many of them around Ypres. But in Ypres, a German soldier started singing Silent Night mm. and a whole lot of British soldiers on the other side joined in and then French did and this spread along the Canadians and all along the front line, they started singing Christmas carols to one another. And of course, many of the carols, even though they've got words in French, German, English, but the tune's the same. And so there was this immediate recognition. And before you knew it, men were coming out of their trenches and walking across no man's land, reaching across the barbed wire, shaking hands with others swapping ration packs, swapping like the British made good pies, the Germans had great chocolates, the French had good wines, and they were swapping amongst themselves, and they were literally showing pictures of their families. And before you knew it, they were having church services, they were doing soccer the next day. It was just absolutely staggering. And, of course, initially... 
people wrote home about this and there was a lot of, and before you knew it, the census cracked down. And many of the things that we know now have been dug out of attics uh, where people have found granddad's letters and uh, things that were at that time suppressed. And then photographs that had been banned have now come out. And as we've pieced this together, it's bigger than anyone had ever imagined. Amazing. So it seems that the Christmas carols are what really united them and reminded them, or not even reminded them, probably opened their eyes for the very first time. They have something in common with them. They're celebrating yes. Christmas. So they're not just a faceless enemy anymore. Exactly. They said up till then they had no idea that there were Christians on the other side. I mean, governments had basically demonized the mm. respective enemies, and people didn't travel as much as they do now, and it was a very uh, um, much of a fighting a faceless, nameless, mm. demonized enemy. And when they suddenly realized, wait a minute, <laughs> we worship the same Lord. And uh, it, it was extraordinary. Now, the, the, at the time that it happened, there was widespread media coverage in New York Times, uh, 31st December 1914, British newspapers like the Mirror, the Illustrated London Times, the Illustrated London News, uh, they all printed front-page photographs of British and German troops mingling and singing Christmas carols. But the French were the first to suddenly recognize, wait a minute, this is a threat to our war effort. So the French severely censored every report on what they called fraternization with the enemy. And then political pressure was brought to bear to censor all reports of this event from all mainstream media. And then the history books for decades denied this even happened. And for years, this extraordinary event was known only by word of mouth from participants. But the damage caused by the Christmas truce to the propaganda campaigns to demonize the enemy was regarded as such a serious threat to the war effort that it's taken decades to unearth the details of the fascinating events surrounding Christmas 1914. I'd venture to guess that most of our listeners would not even be aware of how far this went and how deep it went. So how deep did it go? Well, just to give the background so you can understand how this is possible, in the first five months of the Great War, a million Europeans, more than a million Europeans, had already been killed in action, mostly by artillery fire. In fact, 85% of all the casualties in the First World War were artillery fire. The initial fast-moving campaigns had degenerated into static trench warfare. There was a continuous front line of a maze and mesh of trenches going all the way from the North Sea to the Swiss border mm. across Belgium and France and thousands of kilometers of trenches. And the famous Englishwoman, Emily Hobhouse, is much beloved in South Africa, who had exposed to the world the horrors of Lord Kitchener's scorched earth campaign against the Boer republics of the Transvaal and against the Orange Free State. It was Emily Hobhouse who had made known to the world the horrors of the British concentration camps in South Africa, she was the most prominent campaigner against British involvement in the First World War. And she had authored the open Christmas letter calling for peace. Hmm. So 101 British women signed Emily Hobhouse's open Christmas letter, which was endorsed by 155 prominent German and Austrian women in reply. And so under the heading... On earth, peace, goodwill towards men, Emily Hobhouse wrote, Sisters, the Christmas message sounds like a mockery to a world at war. But those of us who wished, wished and still wish for peace may surely offer a solemn greeting to such of you as feel as we do. And she mentioned that as in South Africa during the Anglo-Boer War, the brunt of modern war falls upon non-combatants and the conscience of the world cannot bear the sight. Is not our mission to preserve life do not humanity and common sense alike prompt us to join hands with women? 
and urge our rulers to stave off further bloodshed. May Christmas hasten that day. And so in response, the German mothers responded to our English sisters, sisters of the same race. Our warm and heartfelt thanks for your Christmas greetings. Women of the belligerent countries, with all faithfulness, devotion and love for their country, can still go beyond it and maintain true solidarity with the women of other belligerent nations that really civilized women never lose their humanity. And so there was already a rising tide of mothers and sisters saying, and wives saying, can we not have peace, at least on Christmas Day? And Emily Hoppas oversaw the raising of funds and shipping of food and medicines to the women and children of Germany and Austria who were suffering as a result of the English naval blockade, which was quite unprecedented because naval blockades were always understood up till then in Christian countries to only be against weapons of war, ammunition and so on, but never against food. But this naval blockade initiated from 1914 was against everything, including food, going to Germany and Austria, which being landlocked were uh, dependent on all of the supplies that they could get from the colonies and so on, which they weren't getting anymore. And so there was literal starvation in Vienna and Berlin and throughout Austria and Germany. And so Emily Hophaus was sending through neutral countries food and medicines paid for by British women to help their German compatriots on the other side. Well, because of Emily Hophaus' stand, a whole lot of ministers started to proclaim from the pulpit that guns should fall silent at least upon the night when Angel sang. But these messages were officially rebuked and they were suppressed in a heavily censored media. The media was very, very censored. And why do you think this was? Well, I think, obviously, the government's trying to get the people to hate and to fight and to kill the enemy. Last thing they wanted was, uh, you know, goodwill amongst men and that sort of thing. So they saw this as subversive. Well, from the first week of December, there were some informal truces being observed by some soldiers on the front line. So, and these are things that have been un. Uh, Doug just recently unearthed. 7th of December 1914, General Charles de Gaulle, well, he wasn't general then, but Charles de Gaulle expressed his dismay at the fraternization of the enemy, where French and German troops were exchanging newspapers and recovering their dead in no man's land and organizing burial parties mutually. And French General de Auburn expressed alarm over soldiers staying too long in the same sector, becoming friendly with the enemies to the extent that they were conducting conversations between the lines and even visiting one another's trenches. Now, this is in December. There's already a Christmas spirit building. <laughs> well, after heavy rains near Ypres, which is a very waterlogged area, the Germans held the high ground, the British held the lower ground. Well, the English troops came out of their flooded trenches in full view of the Germans, who, of course, could have shot them, but they just expressed their sympathy and didn't open fire on their soaked and vulnerable enemy. So it looks like there was a Christmas spirit starting already around Ypres, in early December. Well, the 2nd um, Essex Regiment recorded on 11th of December in their war diary that the officers and men met the German Saxon Corps halfway between trenches, exchanged food, cigarettes, chocolates, and conversations. Well, those were just the first uh, inclinations, but then on Christmas Eve, German soldiers began decorating the trench with Christmas trees and candles. In fact, uh, the Kaiser organized a ridiculous amount that took vast amounts of trains to bring them out of Christmas trees. He wanted Christmas trees everywhere on the front line. And so suddenly Christmas trees start popping up all over the front line and the French and the British and the Canadians and others wondering, what is this? Is this some kind of trick? Well, after decorating the Christmas trees, they started singing Silent Night. And so British soldiers joined in and then they responded with carols of their own, like, come all you faithful. And 
before we knew it, the Germans were singing Town Barn and uh, Christmas Tree. And the two sides began shouting Christmas greetings to one another. And shortly after that, soldiers spontaneously came out of their trenches, walked across no man's land, greeting one another, exchanging gifts and souvenirs, swapping uniform items, hats, and unbelievable. And before you knew it, this truce had spread rapidly across the entire Western Front. And conservative estimate that at least 100,000 men, German, British troops in particular, were involved in this unofficial ceasefire, the Christmas truce. And soon Australians, New Zealanders, Canadians, Belgians, French troops were all joining in the Christmas celebrations in this frozen strip of no man land. There were joint worship services held, which in some cases was easily possible because uh, many were familiar with Latin. At that stage, Latin was pretty well known still. And so they were able to do quite a bit of services in Latin, which was understandable by both sides. There were respectful burial services conducted by combatants of the dead between the lines uh, with joint congregations. I mean, French, German, British, Canadians working together. They swapped their ration packs. The Germans uh, took wine from the French. Uh, the British gave pies. The Germans gave chocolates. There were souvenirs of buttons and badges and hats. And the next day there were football matches. To the extent that the British officer Robert Grays, who wrote a book on this, uh, on his experience in the war, he wrote of the football match between the 133rd Saxon Regiment and the Scottish troops. The Germans won 3-2. The Glasgow News of the 2nd of January report that the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders won their match 4-1. The Royal Artillery, um, Lieutenant Albert Vaines wrote of their soccer match against the Hanoverians near Ypres on Christmas Day. Well, you know, all this sounds amazing, but there were then commanders who threatened repercussions for lack of discipline, and numerous officers ordered their artillery to open fire on the fraternizing troops, which include their own troops, in no man's land. But on none of these occasions did the artillery obey the orders, and the artillery saying, but we're going to kill our own men. And the officer says, yes, they fraternize the enemy, open fire. And it was just a flat refusal. We will not open fire on Christmas Eve on our own troops. No. And so you can imagine there were complaints on record by officers shocked at the what they called the total breakdown of discipline. Men point blank refused orders to open fire on their own forces who were mingling with the enemy in no man's land. Well, General Sir Horace Smith Dorian, who's well known in South Africa, that he was one of the few British survivors of the Battle of Isenwana. Well, uh, Smith, Horace Smith Dorian was now a general, and he was one of the major commanders. He commanded British Second Corps, and he issued orders forbidding any fraternization with the enemy over Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and he complained that his orders were totally disregarded by his troops. And Richard Skiriman, a German, was so impressed by the camaraderie experienced between his German regiment and the French soldiers on Christmas truce, they even exchanged addresses with one another and they went on after war to found the Youth Hostel Association in 1919 to provide meeting places for young men of all countries to get to know one another. So th this was just extraordinary. There were friendships that began then that continued for a lifetime. That's unbelievable. It, it is, it's almost impossible to believe that this wasn't orchestrated, that something so spontaneous could happen, and not just in one front, but across... You said many miles, right? Oh, we're talking about over thousands of kilometers. This, this is just extraordinary. And not just on the Western Front. I mean, for a long time, I thought it was only the Western Front, and I've read books that said this only happened on the Western Front. But now we know 
that there was a general observance of a Christmas truce on the Eastern Front. And what's different about the Eastern Front is that came from the top down. Now, on the Western Front, the orders were, well, don't fraternize with the enemy, but from the bottom up, the people just did. On the Eastern Front, there was an order from the German High Command and the Austrian High Command and the Russian High Command, no hostile actions, only respond to hostile actions from the enemy, otherwise maintain a ceasefire during the Christmas. Now, on the Eastern Front, the Christmas truce lasted for two weeks. And the reason is because there's an Eastern calendar and there's a Western calendar. And you know about the 12 days of Christmas. Well, it so happens that in the Eastern Orthodox, they build up to their main Christmas days, the 6th of January. Of course, they have, a different, they have a different calendar. So out of respect for this, the German commanders, the Austro-Hungarian commanders and the Russian commanders ordered a ceasefire unless you experience hostile acts on the other side, uh, do no offensive actions during this Christmas season of two weeks. And that was observed across the entire Eastern Front with the exception of Serbia. Serbia did not observe it. Serbia kept attacking Austria. So on the Serbian-Austrian mm. Front, there continued to be war. But on the rest of the Austrian, on, on the Eastern Front, there was complete ceasefire between the 24th of December and the 6th of January. And uh, absolutely amazing. And we've got pictures of them coming uh, into the no man's land, dancing on ice together, having parties together. Absolutely unthinkable. And until 2005 and the film Joe X Noel, nobody had ever seen this depicted in the media, never heard of this sort of thing. And uh, although um, my father told me he experienced Christmas truces in North Africa, which, again, I've never seen in the history book. Was that the same year that he experienced Oh, this? no, no. My dad was in the Second World War. Oh, of course, right. So, so uh, in 1941 and 42, my father said that in North Africa, there was a ceasefire over Christmas Eve. They sang Christmas carols and they came out during the day and played football on no man's land. And it was a very good relationship. And he said there were honorable men in Africa Corps were top class. And so I heard that from my dad. It didn't fit with anything I saw in Hollywood. It didn't fit with anything I've seen in the textbooks. I haven't seen this report anywhere else. But my own father spoke of how they observed that in North Africa during the Second World War. Incredible. So after this time of fellowship christmas eve and christmas day you said right yes were they able to get these men to fight again afterwards not really no in fact uh, the, i've heard people distort the christmas truce and say they celebrate christmas together and the next day they were back to killing one another but actually that's not so mm. the the fact is that after the christmas truce the men in each unit on each side who now knew the men on the other side it wasn't a faceless enemy anymore they couldn't bring themselves to do it. So when ordered to fire, they fired high. Um, they fired to miss. In fact, there were ridiculous scenes that, that looked like, uh, surely this couldn't have happened, but it did happen, where uh, the officers sent um, over to the other side and said, our artillery is going to be opening fire at you uh, at this time today. Uh, you may want to take shelter in our trenches. So they, they all came over. And this happened on both sides, where they would, you'd have French and English coming over the German lines, uh, Germans going off the English and French lines uh, to avoid the artillery barrages that were ordered by their sides. And there Very was creative. all kinds of... And when they were ordered to open fire, they open fire making sure they missed. Uh, they often would warn the chaps, look, we've got to open fire in this area and uh, so the people would vacate that area. There's amazing amounts of cooperation to such an extent that um, there was, uh, for example, the French in particular uh, went into an 
absolute apoplexy of court-martialing people. Uh, and they, they put hundreds of men to death in France by firing squads for what they called fraternizing with the enemy. There's even a ridiculous case. Um, if you've seen a Joex Noel film, they referred to at one point that the general had ordered the cat, uh, Felix, who was going between the lines to be shot for treason for fraternizing the enemy, and that order actually came out, although it was very hard to catch the cat. But there were orders like that from the French high command uh, that pets who were going across the lines, there was there was one particularly famous cat in one area that, that was going between the lines and happily you know, getting cheese from this side and milk from that side and whatever. And, Did uh, they ever get the cats? No, they, they couldn't catch a cat. Of course. Uh, because the men on the ground, the men, the men on the ground wouldn't cooperate. Shame. They, they all just said, sorry, we couldn't catch him, sort of thing. But uh, so... French and British officers were court-martialed for participating in this fraternizing of the enemy. Entire units had to be pulled back from the front, sent to other fronts. So, for example, when they saw they're not firing on the enemy or they're firing higher, they're, they're reluctant uh, to fire on people that they've just celebrated Christmas with. So they literally had to take whole units. The British pulled entire units out of the Western Front, shipped them off to go and fight the Ottoman Empire uh, on the Turkish Front and uh, in Iraq and so on and from Egypt into Palestine. Said, we can't do anything with them here anymore. They're useless. The Germans had to pull massive amounts of their men from the Western Front and just ship them over the Eastern mm. Front and vice versa because the men were now virtually um, uncooperative and in a kind of passive disobedience. They were not cooperating. And... Sir Ian Callahan of the Scots Guard was actually court-martialed for defying orders by maintaining a truce uh, between the lines. And fortunately, Sir Ian Callahan was related to British Prime Minister H.H. H. Ashworth. So the punishment was commuted. He otherwise would have been put before the firing squad. So wow. there was a lot of hostility from the high command against us. But the troops on the ground actually said, we feel more affinity to the men on the other side in the trenches than to the people back home have put us here. The enemy on the other side know what we're going through. They're experiencing the same mm. trench rot, foot rot, uh, squalor, um, freezing cold conditions, the rats, the lice and everything else and so on. Uh, we, we've got sympathy from the other side. The people back home don't even know what's going on. We feel no, closer. To, we feel closer to it. My dad said this about the Second World War. He said in North Africa, the real enemy was the desert and the heat and thirst and the sandstorms. And he said, uh, we felt greater affection for the Africa Corps than we did for a high command or the people back home and the politicians that put us here for wow. sure. In fact, there's a whole lot of people. Who, do you know the, the oldest surviving British soldier from the uh, First World War? Um, he only died about age 114 or something. Uh, he said that he and his mates made uh, a pact they would not fire to kill or wound uh, and anyone on the other side. They would fire high, whatever they'd do. But he said, we'd do our duty, we'd go to the front, but we would not ever aim to harm a person on the other side. And he, he got fed up with politicians and prime ministers dragging mm -hmm. him out there, wheeling, literally wheeling him out because he's in a wheelchair by then, to promote their wars in Iraq and so on. And he said, you know, why don't you politicians go do your own fighting instead of sending youngsters into uh, what is nothing less than legalized murder? So... Uh, and he was one of the, uh, you can actually read his, his stories because uh, even though he has used a lot, he said, don't use me to promote your wars. I didn't kill anybody. I didn't shoot anyone. I never even aimed at anyone. And uh, uh, he said, yes, I was on the front line, but I, I was not wanting to be part of your whole operation. Incredible. And so he denied uh, what they were up to. So, yes, uh, an 
absolutely extraordinary event, and you can see why um, governments wanted to deny it had even happened. I believe it. And like you said, it not only happened then in 1914, it's happened since. It happened around the world, like where your father fought in North Africa. So clearly Christmas unites people, people from all kinds of different backgrounds and different religions, different faiths. How uh, can we learn from these events? How does this apply mm. to us today in 2021? Well, I mean, just for starters, if... Um if Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox could find unity in Christ there, we've certainly found us ministering to persecuted church. When a man suffers for Christ, it doesn't matter if he's a different denomination or a different tradition. Uh, when he's willing to suffer for Christ, we should regard them as brothers in Christ. And when you see how much we've got in common with people, even the Orthodox and, and Catholics who, you know, well, we're Protestants. But when we see them suffering for Christ, our whole attitude is different. Uh, but you have people saying they can't go through Christmas lunch with that family member over there and think, well, you know, if enemies could get together <laughs> um, and stop Absolutely. a world war, perhaps we can just find some patience and kindness for some of our neighbors, friends, and some of the difficult family members uh, to be able to reach out. So uh, this is the great message of, of Christmas, is that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his governance and peace, there will be no end. Now, when you recognize that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, it's only appropriate that we'd honor him by not having war on a day that, that is celebrating his birth. But other interesting things come out of this too. So, for example, do you know, during, I discovered this just a while ago, during the Anglo-Boer War, uh, there was routinely during the fighting, they would observe the Lord's Day. So, because the Boers were very strong, strict Sabbatarians, they wouldn't be uh, opening fire on, on uh, Sundays if they uh, were not under attack themselves. So, for example, the sieges of Mafeking and Kimberley, there'd be a ceasefire during Sundays routinely. So at Mafeking, which uh, Baden-Powell, then Major Baden-Powell, later General Baden-Powell, the man who founded the Scouts, he was commanding the British garrison at Mafeking. Mm. And a grandson of President Paul Kruger was commanding the Boers on the other side. And so one day this Commandant Kruger came over, um, uh, saluted uh, Major Baden-Powell and said, as we have ceasefires on uh, Sundays anyway, would you mind if our men came into town and joined you for your church services? And, and Baden-Powell said, by all means. And uh, wow. before you knew it, they were being welcomed to stay for lunch. And then they were having uh, uh, ballroom dances and invited the Boer sometimes on Saturday night to come and join them. For, and there were the British women in the town dancing with the Boer commandos. Uh, I don't know if they still had their bandoliers on, um, <laughs> but they were sitting in churches. They organized concerts. Uh, they did all kinds of cultural events. And you can imagine there was no real desire to hurt one another. They were still in a siege, but um, there was this kindness and friendliness and thoughtfulness mm -hmm. and mutual uh, support because they recognized there's Christians on both sides. Mm -hmm. So It makes it very difficult to fight one another. <laughs> well, and of course, Christians shouldn't be fighting one another, if at no. all, if we can avoid it. It's understandable if you're fighting to defend your life against jihadists who want to kill you and people who try to persecute you like communists. But for Christians, people who love Christ, to be fighting fellow Christians, whether they be of a different denomination or tradition or not, uh, as I think the Christmas truth showed you, the moment the people recognized, wait a minute, those people on the other side, they also have families. Mm. 
They also love the Lord. They, they sing the same Christmas carols. They're worshiping the same Lord. How can we fight one another? So I think for us today, it should put things into perspective. There are politicians who will seek to bring division and who will seek to bring animosity. And mm -hmm. I think it's part of this category of confuse, divide, and conquer. Mm. Let us not get confused. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. What's our highest priority? To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. To seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to us. The Great Commission should be our supreme ambition. We mustn't allow ourselves to be derailed into fighting fellow Christians. For what purpose? Many times it's, it's for a political end. And just consider how neighborhoods where people used to be good neighbors and there used to be such nice spirit, especially at Christmas time, people visiting the neighbors and uh, taking baked cookies to the neighbors and uh, going and, and welcoming and, and especially Christmas greetings and so on. Mm. But now what do you get? This COVID cult, lockdown lunacy, masquerade madness has turned a whole lot of people into uh, screaming people screaming, where's your mask? Get inside. What are you doing? And out our children getting screamed at for uh, out there jogging uh, for exercise or running on an empty field or trying to walk the grandchildren. And there's somebody who might have greeted you before screaming from their uh, doorstep. Because your two-year-old isn't wearing a mask. And, I mean, let's get this into perspective. Who's done this to us? Here we are letting politicians, like they were getting a bunch of Christians to kill one another in the First World War, they're getting Christians now to be an having animosity. Instead of loving our neighbours... Now we've got hostility between neighbors. And, and there's, instead of loving a neighbor, you're fearing a neighbor. Or somehow, my neighbor is a threat to me. That's not right. And, you know, if your mask works for you, then why are you worried if someone else is not wearing it? If your vaccination works for you, then why are you worried with someone else's? And if you want to practice social distancing, that's fine. But don't expect people to practice social distancing with their own children and grandchildren who live in the same home with them. So I do think that, Maybe the Christmas truce can bring some sanity into the insanity going on in the world today. Yes. I mean, it certainly is a very divisive topic, no matter what side you land on. Uh, seems most people are, feel very strongly um, either pro-vaccine, anti-vaccine, pro-mask, anti-mask. Not that many people are... Um, apathetic. Apathetic, exactly. <laughs> yes. So it's really kind of a psychological war that we're in right now, much like in times of actual physical war, we are fighting this virus. And uh, even if it's not the virus we're fighting, we're fighting against those who see things differently from us. So, Our neighbors and sometimes family members. Yes. No, it's, it's divided many families. Many families didn't celebrate Christmas together last year because one person didn't get vaccinated or someone else might be carrying the virus and so it would expose their elderly or their children or immunocompromised family members. So would it be fair to say that this Christmas truce 207, 107 years ago, sorry, in 1914 could inspire us perhaps to be at peace with our neighbors as we celebrate Christ's birth? I think it really should indeed. Uh, it's, it's just a magnificent testimony to the power of the gospel and to the centrality of Christ and to the fact that he is the Prince of Peace, that even people during the worst war in human history, the most destructive war imaginable, could actually stop. And by the way, you know, the Christmas truce wasn't just 1914. 
1915, uh, there were also uh, Christmas truce, although there was extraordinary efforts taken with explicit orders by Allied commanders in particular, elaborate procedures made to forestall any repeat of the previous Christmas mm-hmm. truce, so they even had multiple artillery barrages ordered along the entire front line throughout Christmas Day by the British, but it wasn't that effective because there were even still sections of uh, Christmas truce observed in 1915 mm. with wow. British and um, and uh, German troops having football matches and uh, uh, swapping carols and gifts. And uh, again, in 1916, 1917, there were also, uh, despite extraordinary efforts of massive artillery barrages and so on, mm. yet there were still... Christmas truce observed in 1917 and 1918 and uh, uh, 1917-1916. And recently evidence has come to light of a successful Christmas truce in 1916 between the Germans and the Canadians near Vimy Ridge, where I've been. And they exchanged Christmas greetings and presents and they visited one another's lines on 25th of December. And uh, they now are Christmas truce memorials and I've been to several of them up in France and in uh, Belgium uh, where... Uh, they've actually had units coming together like the Royal Welsh Fusiliers and the German 371 Battalion. Uh, they played football matches with uh, one another and they came back, the, the regiments that um, uh, were represented there, and they had a football match on the same field, and, you know, just building these memorials. And to think that this is now even officially acknowledged by the Imperial War Museum um, with photographic evidence, I think the, the film, if anyone hasn't seen a film, Joex Noel, which was a joint French-German-English uh, production, but mostly, I think, the French were the initiators of this film. It dramatizes it through the eyes of French, Scottish, and German soldiers in the Western Front. And it's, it's a great film. It's a wonderful film. I, I just have um, one minor complaint in that uh, how on earth they managed to uh, find a Roman Catholic chaplain for the Scottish, I don't know, because Scotland's mm-hmm. 96% uh, Reformed Presbyterian at the time. And somehow or another, the one minister in it, instead of having, I mean, a German Lutheran pastor, you'd understand. A French Catholic chaplain, you can understand. A Scottish Presbyterian pastor, you can understand. How did they get a Scottish chaplain who is Roman Catholic? I don't know. But anyway, so that wasn't exactly typical, Mm. but uh, maybe they just thought that um, uh, having a Catholic was, was a nice idea. But of course, throughout the Christmas truce, you had everything from Lutherans, Presbyterians, Catholics uh, involved, and, and the chaplains were fully involved in this, and some of them said, greatest experience in their life. So I think if you haven't seen a film, Joex Noel, we've also got a short little clip, uh, about six, seven minutes, of taken from the film that's on our Frontline Mission SA.org website, where someone can actually see, viewed, mm-hmm. um, uh, some of just the extraordinary how it unfolded, although the whole film's worth seeing for sure. And I've written The Christmas Truce um, 100 years ago, uh, which is a newsletter format that you can access with pictures on our Frontline Mission SA.org website. So you can look for The Christmas Truce uh, as an article. And I think it's it's just one of those things that makes you realize that the power of love is greater than the power of hate. Light is more powerful than darkness. And uh, the gospel of Christ can even bring peace in a time of insane destructive warfare. Absolutely. Well, in Isaiah 9, verse 6 to 7, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, not chaos, but peace. Mm. 
of the increase of his government in peace, there will be no end. That's Isaiah 9, verse 6 to 7. So as we enter this Christmas season now, Christmas Eve is this Friday, and Christmas Day will be on Saturday, the 25th. As we go into this uh, very much anticipated season, remember to try and find moments of peace with your neighbors, with your friends, with strangers, instead of finding ways to be divided, for they are countless ways for us to be divided right now. Let's remember why we can be united, and that is in Christ. Only in Christ. And I might say some of the most wonderful things you can do at Christmas season is listen to Handel's Messiah. I don't know if they're playing it anywhere. Beautiful. Oh, the amount of times that your mom and Daniela have sung in uh, Cape Town Symphony Orchestra and Choir and uh, the Youth Choir, uh, Handel's Messiah, absolutely wonderful. To us, that's always a key part of Christmas season. And, of course, Every Carol's year. by candlelight. Mm. I don't know how many are doing that right now, but um, maybe you can at least find it on the web and um, uh, listen to it in the background while you're preparing things. But Handel's Messiah is just absolutely superb. And then there's another film that we often like around Christmas, and that is It's a Wonderful Life, which is quite, a, quite a great classic. So there are some beautiful things. There's, of course, The Christmas Story, which Charles Dickens put together. And there's some very good film renditions too. And the one with George E. Scott, I think, is our favorite version of The Christmas Story. The Christmas Carol mm. uh, And the Christmas Carol You know Scrooge And all of that um, It's so Man Who Invented Christmas Man Who Invented Christmas Is a new version Yes So I mean that's a, a, a dramatic film of Charles Dickens And how he actually Put together this This extraordinary story Which has inspired generations And so much of what We celebrate in Christmas today How it developed Into the Christmas trees, Prince Albert and his involvement. That's Prince Albert who's married to Queen Victoria. Mm. He brought the Christmas tree, which was quite established in Germany from the time of Martin Luther, and it became common in Britain. That's also where Christmas cards came from. Also, Prince Albert brought those over from Germany. But then a lot of how Britain celebrated Christmas after that was, was basically uh, from the Christmas carol written by Charles Dickens. So uh, these are some classics you can go back to at this time. And it's... Christmas is a time for family. It's a time to reach out to complete strangers and neighbors as well uh, in love and, and grace. And as we've heard, even to one's enemies, mm -hmm. what a good time to resolve some of these conflicts in, over Christmas. And it's quite easy. All you do is you take a gift and uh, you wish people a happy Christmas. What can be easier than that? Absolutely. Are there any other updates, upcoming events you would like to share before we yes, say goodnight? Yes, indeed. Uh, please pray for upcoming Biblical Worldview Summit. From the 6th to the 13th of January, we'll be holding a Biblical Worldview Summit near Hermanus. We've got great speakers coming, uh, uh, international speakers, including, for example, Dr. Philip Stott, creation scientist extraordinary. And when you think that when the this is the engineer who built the 10,000-seater Kwasabantu a mission auditorium, where I was just ministering just uh, over a week ago for the youth conference, which was the first youth conference they've done since the lockdown, which was great. They've had some by virtual, but this was in person. Amazing. And uh, at this, uh, if people are interested, I've got the presentation in both English and Zulu. Um, uh, on our website, you can go on to frontlinemissionessay.org and good tidings of great joy. Uh, the video is available, the PowerPoint's available, the um, uh, screen captures available, and then we had a Christmas celebration service 
uh, on Thursday the 16th. So last week, Thursday, Reformation Society Christmas Carol Service. There's four presentations, four PowerPoints, uh, four audios. And uh, if you want to see the whole thing with the carols, well, we've got that also available on, on the website too. Uh, so there's some good Christmas-related materials available on, on the Frontline web and screen capture and audio, PowerPoints and, and so on. Um, but also, please pray for our mission team still in the field in Mozambique. Over three months have been afield. Zambia, Malawi, Mozambique, very remote areas, ministering in areas where not even the pastor had a Bible or even a New Testament, uh, ministering in some areas where the people were over 90% Muslim and uh, seeing people from Muslim backgrounds coming to Christ, receiving Bibles, ministering in some areas of Mozambique where there was terrorist threats and uh, they've come down with all kinds of diseases and right now two of the team are suffering from malaria. Uh, do pray for them and Daniel, Elishka, uh, Judah, Amika and um, we look forward to them being part of our a biblical worldview summit coming up. So if you're interested in starting your year with a good solid foundation, uh, biblical worldview summit's highly recommended. We've been doing it for 30 years, over 30 years. So that's all coming up and you can get more details on the frontline mission sa.org website or email mission at frontline.org.za. That's right. That's mission at frontline.org.za if you would like to find out more about our upcoming biblical worldview summit. So from the front line tonight, I'm Andrea Combs, and with me, Dr. Peter Hammond, and we wish you a very Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, and a very good night. God bless. <laughs>